As we step into the text, I'm going to invite you to just bow with me before we touch base in Mark chapter 5. Father, we thank you for your fingerprints on our life. You know, there's things that happen in life that, as we're going to talk about today, that are super confusing, and we often have lots of questions about what you're doing or sometimes what we don't think you are doing. We get delays in life, we get misdirected, we have lots of distractions, and yet in all of that, we know that you are with us. Sometimes that's hard for us to really value because often we feel really alone. We feel isolated and then when we couple that with things like suffering and anxiety and things around us that really make us vulnerable, it, it's even a greater challenge. And yet in all of this, we want to continue to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and we ask even this morning as we remind ourselves of these things that you will continue to nurture our hearts to the presence and the power of Jesus and that we can trust you. And so we ask for your spirit to use this as an occasion to stimulate our heart and stimulate our faith. And we entrust ourselves to you for that purpose in Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter five, starting in verse 35, it says this, while he, being that Jesus is uh, interacting with the crowds and people are talking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, now it doesn't identify who they are, probably family and friends, and says this, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he followed no one, or he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Boy, there's a hard shift in gears. Weeping and wailing, and now they are ridiculing him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who served with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talatha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. There are some uh, different experiences in life that sort of remind me of this. I remember when I was pastoring in Portland, there was a gentleman there from Micronesia, really a soft-hearted, humble individual. He worked as a part of the janitorial staff at one of the local community colleges, but he came to our church. His wife was a handful. I only saw her a couple of times, but she was not on the same page as him and did a lot of things that she wanted, and it really broke his heart because... She was involved with other men and other things, and he could tell how much it weighed and suffered on his heart because this isn't the way God wanted it. When he passed away, they had a big funeral at the community college, and there was all kinds of people there. And right before the service started, there was a lady who knew him, and I don't know if she was from Micronesia, but I'm guessing they, were, they found each other in this process, and she, all of a sudden, it was quiet and somber like we would normally be in terms of one of our funerals, and all of a sudden she started wailing. 
and she just got louder and louder and louder. And she got up from her chair and went up to the casket and she draped herself over the casket and was wailing like anywhere on campus, I'm sure you could have heard her. And we're all standing back kind of going like, wow, because this isn't the way we do things. And yet from Micronesia, there's a sense, at least as the way I've understood it, is that in a sense, the louder and more grief that you've demonstrated, the more that you showed the value of that person in your life. And so she was showing how much she valued Smith, was his name. And she just kept this up. I mean, it, it must have gone on for 15, 20 minutes, and we're like, nobody knows what to do, because she was the only one engaged in this little ceremony, as it were. But it really unnerved a lot of people, because they just didn't know how to do with it. And of course, being in the country we're at, we're kind of going like, well, this is like a little overblown. Um, but of course, we look through the lens of what we think is appropriate. If you have been around the world, they don't do it quite like we do. And so she went on and finally the service started and she went through this process, but as I came to understand, this was her way of showing how important Smith was to her. You and I would go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to show a lot of sense of personal resolve, like your world is crumbling because this person is missing. We had a funeral here yesterday and uh, it was a great time to celebrate uh, uh, a believer's life and their journey. We do things pretty respectful, so there are some fun stories to tell and those kind of things. But it's, it's amazing how we deal with loss and crisis in our life, isn't it? Sometimes you may know how to deal with it, other times you don't. But one of the things it reminds us of is how vulnerable we really are. You know, lots of times we think we've got everything by the tail and we've got plans and goals and all that we're going to accomplish until that moment when something happens and everything seems to go sideways. One of the things I want to remind you is uh, Jairus is the dad. But he's identified through most of this text as the ruler of the synagogue or a ruler of the Jews as it were. And if you remember, he comes pursuing after Jesus and, you know, back then they didn't have, you know, find my phone and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he had probably heard stories where Jesus had gone across the Sea of Galilee and then he was coming back and so he went hunting Jesus fervently. Because if you are a parent and to think, as it's mentioned here, that she is 12 years old and she's on her deathbed, I don't know any parent that wouldn't like tear the world apart to try to find an answer for their child. Uh, you and I both know even if our kids get a little bit sick it's easy to start panicking because we don't know what's going to happen. In the process of this, we know he was, had some fears. He went hunting Jesus and was compelling him to come and look after his daughter. And on the way, remember the woman comes sneaking through the crowd and touches his cloak. And power goes out from Jesus to heal her and he stops. And, and I, I suspect at that moment, Jairus' fears went through the roof because it's kind of like, wait. We don't have time for this. My daughter's dying. Why, why are you stopping to interact with these people? Now, it might have, he might have pacified a little bit when he found out that this woman comes crawling forward and gets on her knees before Jesus and admits that she's the one that touched his cloak and Jesus healed. All of a sudden, Jairus is going, oh, man, that's fantastic. Let's go, let's go. I mean, my daughter's dying. And just as they start turning the corner and start moving, turns around and sees some family and friends walk up. And it probably doesn't take much to realize that things have changed. And as the text read, they say, listen, 
your daughter's dead. There's no reason to bother the rabbi anymore. I don't know if you've gone through that kind of turmoil in life. Maybe it's not with a child, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a loved one or some relative, maybe a really good friend. I was having a discussion with a friend that I know at Snap Fitness who had a friend who committed suicide last year. There's something about death that really rattles us. As Christians, we sort of have all the theological stuff in our head that we go, it's not the end, but there's nothing like suffering that makes death really a horrible thing to look forward to. If I want to die, I'd rather get run over by a buffalo than suffer long, agonizing weeks and months on, not knowing who I am, my brain's all screwed up. I mean, more than it is now, but anyway. But there, there's something, not maybe even about death, but suffering that's really difficult for us to understand and handle. But the other part of this is I suspect that as they come up and say, your daughter's dead, that if I was a dad, I'd be going like, I failed. I was responsible to look after my family, to protect my little girl, and I failed. I've been a parent, and if I don't go through that, I know my wife does. You know, all, all our kids have to do is get called down to the principal's office, and it's like, man, we're terrible parents. Where did we fail? We have these core fears that cook up within us, and jar. Jairus sort of sets the stage for it, but the people that I want us to focus on a little bit is the friends that come. Because it's interesting that they come to him and say, look, you need to stop. Your daughter has died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. And it, it made me think as I was beginning that that's a really intriguing statement because at his greatest point of need, now that he's lost his daughter, is when he needs Jesus the most. And yet it's amazing how often when we think we've come to the end of all hope that we don't think we need to bother Jesus anymore. There's really two attitudes I see here. The frustration of helplessness. Why do we need to bother Jesus anymore? Because this is the end of the road. There's nothing more that can be done. This is the end of the journey. She's gone. Why, why bother God with this anymore? The, this did not turn out the way that I wanted to. It. All your prayers and pleading with Jesus isn't going to go the way you want it to. Sound familiar? Well, it may not be someone's life, but it might be the job you were hoping for or something else that we had our hearts set on and we were passionate about doing it and it's just gone. I remember when we were uh, up in... British Columbia one time, one of Barb's nieces got dumped by her boyfriend. And she was acting like the end of the world had come. She was not wailing, but she was depressed and discouraged and walking around and Barb and her sister tried to do everything they could to try to encourage her and she just wouldn't be consoled because she was rejected. And, it, and it's really hard when we go through crisis and loss and our hopes are dashed because things didn't turn out the way they want for us to really go into a tailspin. And often we give up on God saying, well listen, everything's gone, my hopes and dreams, everything I planned for is gone. All right God, I don't have to pray about this anymore. I guess that's your answer. And sometimes that's a sense of 
resolution that, all right, Lord, if you've closed the door on this particular part of my journey and I'm going a different direction, I can live with that. And it can have, I guess, a sense of surrender and a sense of a commitment to trust that God's going to lead you even if your greatest hopes and dreams have suddenly been robbed and taken away from you. Sometimes that's hard. But there's another side to this idea. It's not just why do, we need, uh, we, why do we need to bother Jesus anymore, but the other phrase is why do we need to bother with God anymore? See, there's some people who go through crisis, and I could see Jairus going through this thing, and he's been pleading with Jesus, trying to get him there, and he stops to heal this woman, and you let my daughter go. You could have saved my daughter. And there's some people that go through crisis and loss that the statement is, well, I don't need to bother you anymore about it, Jesus or God, because, all right, I can accept the fact that this is what happened. But there's some people who come out of that kind of crisis and they go, I don't want to be bothered with you anymore because you didn't help. And I've run into all kinds of people who all of a sudden there's events like this that change their whole thinking about who God is and they go, listen, if, if you're a God who really loves us, why don't you step in and do something? And I suspect Jairus and his family were putting all of their hopes on Jesus and it looks like he let them down. And there's moments in crisis and great loss where people go, I don't want to have anything more to do with you because you won't help. So what do you do with that? How do you respond? If you're, if you're sitting in a counseling session and you're, someone's agonizing over their loss and their helplessness and the hopelessness of their situation, what do you tell them? Well, it can range from anything. Listen, it'll be okay, which if you want to get smacked in the head and trampled on, that might be the way to go. But what do you say? Job had three friends, who I've mentioned lots of times, who came and sat in his presence for an entire week, and then they made the mistake of opening their mouths. And we know that being present was great. Trying to give counsel is a whole different thing. And and so as we walk through this, we discover that people can go one way. We can say, look, God, we don't need you anymore because I guess obviously this is done. There's nothing to change. We can't fix it. Or there's the people that will come out of crisis and loss will say, God, I don't want to be bothered with you anymore. And so as we look at this, we then see Jesus hearing these conversations that family and friends are communicating to Jairus. And Jesus hears it, and he comes over and he does what you and I would probably say, that's the worst thing you could ever say. Because Jesus says, listen, do not fear, only believe. Now, th- put yourself in Jairus' f- shoes. He's just got word that his da- little 12-year-old daughter died. He's been working like crazy to try to get Jesus there. He could heal him. He ran into a situation where they got interrupted, and that delay may have cost his daughter's life. And especially when he heals this woman, he knows if I could have just gotten him there, it would be different. And in all of that, Jesus comes and says, listen, do not fear, only believe. I think Jairus would have looked at Jesus and go like, what is that supposed to mean? 
Believe what? My daughter's dead. I had all kinds of faith in believing before, before now. But now I know you're, you're willing to heal this person over here and not my daughter. I mean, my friends and family are saying, maybe we don't need to bother Jesus anymore. And he might have struggled with the idea of, why do I want to be bothered with you? And all you can tell me is, don't fear, only believe? What does that mean? If I pull away from the text slightly a little bit here, it doesn't always have to necessarily be the suffering and sickness or the death of a loved one or a family member that surfaces the core fears that we have in our life. There's all kinds of things that he was dealing with, but I want to suggest to you and I've used Gary Smalley's book on the DNA of relationships, and I know there's a number of you that will recognize this because I force all my premarital counseling couples to go through it. But we all have core fears. We all have things that are going on in our life that we're worried about. We sometimes worry about what gyrus, helplessness and feeling powerless or controlled by others. Sometimes we're terrified of being rejected feeling closed out by others and that we're not worthy to fit in. We feel abandoned or left behind. Whether it's divorce or a parent leaves your family when you're younger, it's easy to feel abandoned. And those wounds often shape a lot of the way we end up living. We can feel disconnected from people or feeling like a failure. We can feel unloved, and in our culture that's not hard to get to. We can feel defective, like because I'm different than the people around me, that maybe there's something wrong with me. We can all feel inadequate. I would never get involved in a ministry, I'd never get involved with people because I just don't have the same kind of talent as everybody else, so not only am I inadequate, but I find out I'm inadequate by comparing myself to everybody around me. If I get people, let people get too close, I can discover that they're gonna discover I'm a hypocrite. Kind of one of the nightmarish terrors that goes on in many people's lives is if people really saw the struggles going on in my heart, they would never be my friend. Sometimes we've been exploited by people. Or we're often invalidated by the attitudes of others and even humiliated by those around us when they thought they were being funny. Fear is a very real thing that we all have to deal with. If you're a parent, you're terrified what's going to happen to your kid if you let him go to the public school or grow up in a world that's just clawing away to tear them apart, to destroy their identity. The individuals who takes the attitude, say la vie, you know, I'm not afraid of anything, probably either lying to themselves or they're just not connected to the real world. <laughs> And so how do we manage this? I mean, what, is, what, is, what are the words of comfort when Jesus comes to him and I think in some reasonable way says, listen, if you really want to understand when we're most vulnerable, when our weaknesses are exposed the most, he says, listen, don't fear, just only believe. Now I want to remind you, I've made this distinction in previous weeks, but I'll do it again because I don't know if you're here or not, so that's just my good excuse to say it again, whether you heard it or not. I, I draw a, a practical distinction between belief and faith. 
Belief is often this element of our, especially a biblical belief and faith, that our belief is in a person. It's in the source. It's in God. It's in the person of Jesus. And that belief is, is really rests on the credibility of, do I really believe what the Bible says, who he is, that that's true. Faith is often described as my confidence in his promises. And, and so when God says, here's how I want you to live life, if I really believe in who he is, because that's the basis of having a faith that has the confidence to do what he, his word says, then I'll obey that. If I don't have a lot of belief, if I don't have a lot of confidence in God's word is the best thing for me, then I'm going to struggle with this idea of obeying his word. So when Jesus says to Jairus, just believe, I think he hasn't made any promises about what he's going to do. I mean, everybody knows, look, she's dead. There's nothing left to do. There's no hope. There's no solutions. Don't bother Jesus anymore. And yet Jesus says, well, just believe. If I was Jairus, I'd go like, in what? My daughter's dead. Jesus doesn't give any explanation about what he's going to do here. I mean, Jairus is trying to get her back, him back there to heal her, but now that's over, and Jesus doesn't say, here's my plan. Here's what I'm intending to do. We have no record that that's, at this point, that he gives any of that information in this particular text. And I want to pause there for just a second to say, in fact, I had a real brief conversation with someone before we started. When you don't know what God's doing and things look absolutely hopeless, do you have the ability to put confidence in Jesus even when he doesn't explain what the road ahead's gonna look like? See, Jairus is a bit flying blind here. You want me to believe, I guess that means I have to have confidence in who you are, but I don't know what the plan is here. I don't know where this is going. I don't see where hope fits into this because my daughter's dead. And Jesus at this point doesn't seem to give any explanation. Just believe. And I, I suspect Jesus may have paused, looked him right in the eye and said, just believe. We go through this in our marriages, don't we? I remember, uh, I was trying to think of a real tangible example. I can't, so I'll just throw it out here in general, worthless generalities. Barb and I will do something and I sometimes will plan something for us and but I won't tell her the details. So I say, well, here's what we're gonna do. And she'll go, well, wait a minute. I, we've got this to do and that to do. And I said, don't worry, it's, it's, it's gonna be all right. And I won't give her the plan. And she goes, yeah, but this is, I said, it's okay, I've got it. So we'll start going on our little adventure, whether we're driving somewhere and she'll go like, I don't understand how this is gonna work. We've got this stuff to look. I said, it's all right, we've got it, I got it covered. And so once we finally get to what we're doing, then all the pieces start coming together, and she goes, oh, that's why we did. Well, I'm sorry I got so frustrated with you, because I didn't know, and I said, yeah, and you didn't trust me. Now, she's got lots more times that she could do the same thing to me, so this isn't one-sided by any stretch. But the point is, we hate it when we don't know where we're going and what it looks like. And sometimes we treat God a lot that way. God, yeah, listen, this is, what you, this is who you are and this is what you said, but like, I want to know what this is going to look like. What, what are the commitments you're asking me for? What, are the, what is this going to cost? Do I have to make any sacrifices? Because I'd like to know that before we get going here. 
Because I, I really like to have a better picture of this. And Jesus says, uh, no, look, you just, you got to trust me. Well, I do trust you. I just would like a little more information on the details of what's going on in front of us here because I don't see how this is going to work. And God says, uh, you're just going to have to trust me. Yeah, I know that, but I, you know, I just, I'm feeling really anxious about this and it would really help me to follow you if, if I could hear some details. And Jesus says, just believe. Have confidence in who I am. I've got your back. And sometimes the worst things that we do as Christians is that we claim that we believe in this Jesus, this all-powerful one who sacrificed his life and was buried and raised to satisfy the wrath of God against us because of our sin and our separation. But when Jesus comes along and says, all right, here's my word, here's how I want you to live. I want you to love one another and I want you to forgive one another and I want you to demonstrate grace and now, aside from the, often the times when we don't understand a lot of what that means, we kind of go, well, God, you know, I, I know what your word says, but, you know, I think I've got this. I, I'm not sure I need you right now because things are going pretty well. I think I've got this figured out. And then we're, we're pursuing our dreams and it's all coming together and all of a sudden it crashes because I didn't, the plan didn't come together. And then we get sometimes a little miffed at God. It's kind of like, well, wait a minute. Why, did, why, why didn't you make this work? Because this is what the plan was. And, and if you're not going to help me in this particular thing, then like, why should I be bothered with you? Because things were going well. And Jesus comes back and says, just stop fearing. Just believe. Now, in spite of the fact that for most of us that sounds pretty trite, Jesus doesn't give any more explanation in this particular text. Now, if we were to jump, for instance, to John chapter 11, when we're, we're given insight into how Jesus views death, he knows things about it that maybe Jairus doesn't. I won't go through the whole text, but this is when Lazarus died, and if you remember there, Jesus decided to go for a picnic for three days before he went to see Lazarus when he was sick, and he could have healed him, but he stayed away three more days, and then he died. Thanks a lot. And then he's on his way and he tells his disciples, hey, he's fallen asleep, I'm going to go wake him. And they're kind of like, dude, what do you need to do that for? Like, he's, <laughs> he'll wake up, <laughs> what's the problem? And finally Jesus has to say, look, he's dead, but I'm glad I wasn't there because now I'll give you an opportunity to believe that you wouldn't have a chance if I didn't take you through this journey that seems hopeless and helpless. I'm going to teach you something about believing in who I am that you're not going to get anywhere else and you're never going to get it unless we go through this hopeless and helpless situation. Martha does the same thing when he comes out to her. It's like, Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Jesus, in that particular context, unreals, unveils to them the things that he knows that he hasn't just that they weren't paying attention. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. Martha and Mary are kind of like, yeah, I, I know that. He'll be raised in the, in the last day. He'll be raised just like all those who put faith and trust in you. We don't have to, 
live in our fear. We don't, but why? Not because we have all the answers, but because we trust Jesus. And even though it's a little difficult for us, and this will be a little hard to hear, to the degree that we believe in Jesus, to that degree, he will, he will often lessen our fears because we're so confident that Jesus has our back and he's the final solution to everything we face that I don't need to fear. <laughs> Doesn't always work that way, does it? Jesus, I believe in you, but man, I'm so worried. I'm anxious about this stuff. It's not going to work. I don't know where it's going. I feel like I'm blind. I'm all by myself. I'm rejected because it's not working the way I want to. Jesus, would you get in here and help? And he says, uh, stop fearing. Just believe. And so when Jesus gets down to the family, he drives out all the people. It's amazing. They're wailing and weeping for their loss. And Jesus makes this statement, well, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And just like that, just like that, they turn on him, and the word laughter literally means to ridicule by laughing. They're mocking him because this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard. And I don't doubt that that's why Jesus drives them out. And then what he does is he goes in and he's going to take her by the hand and he's going to raise her from the dead. I'm completely confident that the reason why Jesus tells them that is because she's not dead, she's just sleeping because he's protecting the family. Because he's going to go in and raise her from the dead. We understand the theological idea from John. But the family's not going to take a hit because they're going to make claims Jesus rose her from the dead and they can just say, well, she was just sleeping. Because Jesus charges them, don't tell anybody about this. What? One, how, is, how are people not going to know? There's enough people that were here that know she died. How are they not going to know? And I think Jesus protects the family to the extent he says, look, she, he raises her from the dead, she walks around, better get her some food, she's probably starving to death. No, that's probably not the right way to put it. And Jesus doesn't do a big show, he doesn't do a big parade, he doesn't do a big community celebration. He says, I'm gonna wake her up from the dead and I want your lives to go on normal. Just keep doing what you're doing and honor me. By the way, you'll notice two things in this whole narrative that are really interesting. One person caught it and mentioned it to me. You notice that the woman had suffered for 12 years and the little girl was 12 years old. The woman had been suffering for as long as this girl had been alive. Two very different situations. People who are probably as vulnerable as you could get in that particular context who probably lived with all kinds of fears, and in the midst of that, Jesus says, listen, don't fear, only believe. I suspect that's probably one of the hardest things you and I will ever do in the midst of our crisis and our loss and feelings of hopelessness and helplessness and isolation and feeling rejected and feeling isolated from other people and insignificant and moments in life where you don't think you measure up and that you're worthless and all these different things, in the midst of those things ringing off your brain and off your heart, Jesus says, hang on, stop fearing, just believe in me. 
And the question I want to ask you this morning is, how well, when life is unfair, that you're going through suffering, that you've lost the hope that you were hoping to happen, you're feeling helpless and isolated and maybe rejected and everything else, I think Jesus often comes to us and says, listen, I'm not going to give you the whole plan where we're going, but stop fearing, just believe in me. Look into my eyes, I've got your back. And there's many of us that will push back and say, well, yeah, but Jesus, look at this mess. This is dead. This is hopeless. This is, and Jesus says, stop fearing, just trust me. Yeah, but Jesus, can't you tell me where we're going to go? Like, where's this going to end up? Because I have no hope. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I don't know if life's worth living because I've lost my best friend. I've lost everything that's in front of me. I, he says, listen, stop fearing. Just believe. And sometimes the greatest crises in our life are the greatest opportunities for, to discover something about our belief in who Jesus is than any other situation in life. But for many of us, when you look inside your own heart and you look at your own anxieties and your fears and your insecurities and your isolations and your fear of rejection and everything else, that's where God's going to come to you and he's going to whisper in the midst of all that clutter and chaos and all those anxieties and fears, he's going to say, listen, don't fear, believe. Now, I don't believe for an instant that that's just some little trite little formula that we should speak to one another. But what we're going to discover is that Jesus is bigger than our greatest fears. And he can step into things in our life that we will never be able to conquer, that we will never be able to fix, that we will never be able to overcome on our own. And the struggle for you and I is whether I'm going to live by fear or I'm going to live by faith. Whether I'm going to believe in the person of Jesus and he's got my back or I'm not. Do you know how to believe or have confidence in Jesus alone even when he did not do things the way you thought he should do them, nor give you a clear direction as to what he is going to do? Do you have such confidence in Jesus to sustain you through the most challenging, unfair circumstances of your life? Charles Schultz was the writer of the Peanut Comics. I grew up with them. I don't even know if they're around anymore. I'm sure they are. And one of the problems with Charles Shorts is he often reflected on the sadness and the discouragement of life. And he wrote that into his characters. If you watch the Phoenix comics and, and uh, watch the shows, he, he seemed to love people who were always losers, always seemed to fail. Charlie Brown's baseball idol, Joe. Shabalink or something, I can't even know his last name. He was the worst player in the pros. He picked all these characters that seemed to have failure. Even the major characters that he wrote into there, Charlie Brown and the little red-headed girl, kind of like unrequited love, they just couldn't make it work. Lucy and Schroeder, Linus and Mrs. Othmar, even Snoopy gets dumped at the altar. Happiness may be a warm puppy, but as cartoonist Charles Schultz once said, happiness is not very funny. Schultz infused his Peanuts cartoons with his lifelong feelings of depression and insecurity. He had his heart broken by a real-life redhead girl, and that showed how one could feel lonely even in a crowd. 
Many of his cartoons have two characters outside at night. Staring at, uh, pardon me, many of his cartoons have two characters outside at night staring at the field of stars. Charlie Brown says, let's go inside and watch television. I'm beginning to feel insignificant. I think the greatest hope that we have as individuals and especially as believers is that in all of our insecurity and in all of our insignificance, we have a God who thought that we were valuable enough that he sent his only begotten son to die on a brutal cross to satisfy his wrath so that you and I wouldn't have to take it. That doesn't tell me we're insignificant. We have great value, but we're not good because we can't fix our own problems and we can't escape our own fears. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know that apart from Christ, I don't know how people operate today. I have a friend of mine who told me that, different context, but we'll get together when the chaos stops. I'm, I'm fairly certain the chaos isn't gonna stop. But the only way to stop it in our own hearts and lives is when we surrender to God through faith in Jesus Christ and learn to believe so confidently in who Jesus is that we can live by faith because we trust him and his word so implicitly that we know he's got his back even if we can't see where we're going, we can't see a way out of the hopelessness and the helplessness or the insecurity in our own life. He can bear us up in his arms and he can say, listen, I love you. And I'm never gonna forsake you. And I'm with you always. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we need to trust. No better time than today, regardless of what you're facing this last week or what you're running into this week. Today's the day to stop fearing and just believe. Father, we live in a world where there's a lot going on. We battle through struggles and fears and anxieties and responsibilities. We face things that change when we had our hopes so set on certain things happening, whether it was a relationship or a job or an activity or qualifying for some privilege or role that we thought we were gonna get. But maybe it's been the negative things that have happened that we've lost our job. We had a friend that's disowned us. Our marriage is broken, breaking up. My so-called friends have mocked and laughed at me because of I'm different. Father, I would ask that you will stir in our hearts that there's times that we might say like Jairus' friends that we don't need to bother you anymore because there's nothing left to do. And yet that's the very time that we need to listen to Jesus saying, don't fear, just believe in me. What that all looks like and entails sounds simple, but Father, sometimes that's the most courageous thing we'll ever do is that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of our own internal clutters, that we stop fearing by believing in you. And I pray that you'd stir people's hearts this morning 
that that could be the most important step that we could make this morning is to start believing in the Jesus who saved us. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.